Mark Lynch, and this is the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. On today's book segment, we'll hear from Emmy Madison of Wesleyan University talking about her new book, The Violence Pendulum, Tactical Change in Islamist Groups in Egypt and Indonesia, uh, published by Oxford University Press. We'll also hear from Juliette Chimini about her new article, Learning Mechanisms Within an Islamist Party, Tunisia's Enahda Movement Between Domestic and Regional Balances, and from Jana Belchner on her new article, Electoral Engineering in New Democracies, Strong Quotas and Weak Parties in Tunisia. Uh, thanks for listening to our show. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. We're joined now by Giulia Cimini of the University of Bologna, who is the author of a new article, Learning Mechanisms Within an Islamist Party, Tunisia's Anahda Movement Between Domestic and Regional Balances. It's part of a special issue of the journal Contemporary Politics, uh, which she co-edited with Beatrice uh, Tomé Alonso, uh, and containing a number of articles on, uh, on Islamist movements in North Africa. Uh, Giulia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Mark, for having me. It's great to be here. Well, so tell us about the article and uh, what uh, it tells us about Anahta. Yeah, uh, well, this is an article that focuses specifically on how Tunisia's Anahta responded to fast-changing contexts that became increasingly hostile to political Islam. So how the party reoriented itself under the input of um, contingent events and current leadership. So this article started, uh, started with uh, a consideration for decades and transformed towards moderation in search for public recognition. But only in 2011, it became an integral part of the Tunisian political scene and it has since continuously been the incumbent party. Nevertheless, it has continued to ad adopt an increasingly moderate line, which I believe amounts to self-limitation uh, or self-restraint as I use these two words as synonyms. So moving from these puzzling circumstances, I tried to explain why another chose to self-limit, why it opted for self-restraint even after the movement's inclusion in the political sphere, and even when it finally came to power. So what I argue is that the party's self-restraint and abandonment of more orthodox Islamic claims should be seen as a learning process and the outcome of this process. So central to the argument of this article is that major changes in the party's approach occurred in the context of uh, specific critical moments defined as such by the cumulative effects of domestic pressure and external counter examples. More precisely, in the article, I frame a NAFTA shifting position in terms of a threefold approach reflecting learning on its part. So we have a readiness to negotiate, a reassuring attitude, and a self-restraint capacity. Uh, yeah. So, so you actually make a really interesting argument in the article, uh, distinguishing your concept of learning from the more widely used concept of moderation. Uh, why do you think that's so important? Uh, I think it's important because we know that Islamists have been the focus of much scholarly interest, but most of existing studies have drawn implicitly or explicitly on the moderation framework, be it by exclusion, as in the case of another, or by inclusion, as more often argue. And these studies have done so with an almost exclusively domestic focus. So in so doing, uh, the literature largely ignores why Islamists, for instance, should continue to moderate or opted for other uh, behaviors after their inclusion and even when they finally came to power. So one might wonder whether moderation is the only defining trait of uh, Islamists. So therefore, the, uh, this article aims to uh, complement previous approaches and ought to expand the analytical and theoretical framework for Ennahda and possibly other Islamist parties and movements in two important ways. 
by moving beyond moderation that is usually uh, interpreted as a departure from the original Muslim Brotherhood's guiding principle and a shift toward a liberal democratic agenda. So bringing in self-limitation variants so as to systematize a broader set of behavior which may relate to moderation but are not limited to moderation. And secondly, uh, the article takes into account the interplay of broader regional and international trends with domestic contexts, thus through a multi-level approach. So in this sense, learning is a key to uh, understand, to, um, to get a more comprehensive picture of Islamists, but uh, it's also challenging because, of course, there is not unified theory of learning nor a widely accepted definition of it. But undoubtedly, there is a number of defining traits. So learning is, of course, about change, although not all change is learning. So what distinguishes learning from other types of changes concerns, above all, intentionality and the emphasis on agency. So in this sense, learning is um, an intentional, thoughtful and cognitive transformation process about what to emulate and what to avoid, or to put it differently, is about examples and counterexamples, best practices and worst practices that uh, have to be shunned rather than shared. And Nakda acted to avoid or at least to circumscribe the possibility to return to its pre-2011 status, namely to underground activities, repression, and exile. And you place a, a great emphasis on the regional context, which I, I found very interesting and, and I found quite convincing, uh, specifically the 2013 coup in Egypt and what this signaled about the possibility of an Islamist movement being removed from power and, and as you say, forced back underground. So tell, tell us a little bit about this then. How does the international uh, intersect with the domestic pressures that a party like Anafta was facing? Uh, yeah, what I uh, do in the article indeed is to highlight Anafta shifting discourse and policy and trace uh, these major changes back to key regional and domestic events. So in particular, I identified two crucial moments affecting the party's decision-making, a new outlook which occurred between, let's say, 2013, 2014, and then in 2016. So these changes in the party's approach were driven by this cumulative effect of domestic and regional um, experiences. And of course, I'm not saying that these changes are mere byproducts, for instance, of the Egyptian coup that undoubtedly represent the uh, most glaring example of this mounting pressure and hostile environment vis-a-vis uh, -vis political Islam. But however, I say that domestic pressure and these accumulated experiences uh, of Islamist fellows abroad had an impact uh, because of specific circumstances, but also fragilities at the domestic uh, level. So we have, for instance, the 2013 military takeover in Egypt that has a strong symbolic value because of course it represented the triumph of counter-revolutionary forces on the one end, but on the other end, it exposed the fragility of Islamist parties or movements, even when they are uh, at power. Then we have uh, the caliphate advance in Syria or the ISIS-backed attacks in Europe, as well as the authoritarian drift of the Turkish uh, AKP party that was considered as a, um, a success uh, of um, political Islam for its economic economic uh, policies and so on. So all these uh, the international and regional aspects uh, um, combined with the escalation, for instance, of Salafi jihadi violence at home, the deadly terrorist attacks on foreign tourists in 2015, the two political murders in 2013. So all these events contributed drove to another learning vis-a-vis -vis the possibility of renewed repression and chaos. Now, because of your emphasis on agency, it's quite interesting that uh, when, you, when you look at the, uh, the actual uh, exercise of self-restraint and learning, 
you, you end up focusing a lot on uh, Rashid Ghanoushi personally and his willingness to sit down with Kaida Sepsi of uh, Nida Tunis, even uh, when both parties were quite hostile to each other. And so I'm, I'm curious, you're thinking about how the learning of individuals uh, intersects with these broader organizations. Well, that's that's really a good point because uh, indeed, when in the article I talk about uh, another, but I also specify another leadership, meaning that I'm perfectly aware that within the party there are different uh, currents. So uh, indeed, in this particular specific period, uh, Ganushi leadership uh, played a major role in convincing uh, the party to adopt to change or reorient itself towards a given uh, direction that is more um, prone to this readiness to negotiate or this proactive reassuring uh, attitude with regard to the party's genuine intimate commitment to liberal democracy and the rejection of uh, jihadism. So although within the party, of course, uh, there were different souls, uh, I would say uh, the line of um, Garnucci leadership could in a way prevail exactly because there were, there were a number of events domestically, but also regionally and internationally that pushed, that favor this more compromising line instead of other more, uh, let's say, intransigent uh, segments within uh, within the party. But of course, this uh, strategy uh, came with a cost. I mean, it, it costed Enada dearly. If we think, for, for example, in terms of the uh, declining electoral um, support rates, or uh, also in terms of actually frictions within the party that have considerably grown within the uh, organization. So this strategy, this threefold approach, I would say, that was sponsored, uh, heavily sponsored by uh, Rashid Granuji, uh, indeed allowed the party to stay alive, to um, remain in place uh, within this decade, but at the same time, uh, also make it more weakened. Com perhaps uh, compared to the uh, to the past, and we have to consider that, of course, this process is uh, a reversible process. Of course, mm -hmm. so it can change depending on the circumstances. That's why I focuses on the relevance of the agency because. Uh, all these strategies are far from being self-evident or unavoidable. So um, your article is part of the special issue that you edited with uh, Beatrice Tomei Alonso. Um, between your article and the special issue, um, what do you hope that other scholars of Islamist movements, uh, whether in North Africa or more broadly, uh, will take away from the, from the this research and, uh, and and incorporate into their own uh, studies? Uh, well, and only this special issues. Uh, combine a more theoretical reflection upon this underappreciated interaction of domestic, regional, and international factors with an empirical focus on the development of Islamists um, with regard, for instance, to their uh, ideological organization development, but also in terms of uh, shifting alliances, policy, and platforms. So we decided to opt it for an inside-out perspective and an actor-centered approach to overcome the compartmentalization of these three levels of analysis and the obsession with moderation for Islamists. So my hope is that more and more uh, scholars will be able to consider uh, not only this interweaving of uh, multi-level, multiple spatial uh, dimensions, but at the same time to look at Islamists, portraying them as regional, rational actors, not just ideological actors, trying to uh, depict uh, a picture that is not only linked to moderation, but possibly that could really um, consider a much broader set of behaviors that can be, as I said, linked to learning, competition, collaboration, or other dynamics actually that 
uh, are worth to be examined and explored. Well, great. Thank you. We've been speaking with uh, Giulia Cimini of University of Bologna. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Mark. I really appreciate the opportunity. This is the POMAP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. We're joined now by Jana Belsner of the University of Bergen in Norway. And she's the author of a new article, Electoral Engineering in New Democracies, Strong Quotas and Weak Parties in Tunisia, which was recently published by Government and Opposition. Jana, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. So tell us about the article. Um, what's the major argument and contribution that you're making? Well, the article is basically looking at how parties in Tunisia uh, comply or not comply with electoral quotas. Um, so you may be aware of that uh, Tunisia is quite famous actually for having introduced quite strict electoral quotas for several groups in politics. So uh, they introduced electoral candidate quotas for women, youth, and people with disabilities for their recent local elections. Uh, and I take a closer look onto why parties would, um, would comply with those quotas and also why they would not. Um, and what I find in, in the article is that uh, the biggest party, Anahda, which is the, the Islamist party, is also the biggest compliant with quotas. Uh, and this is surprising for, for some scholars of gender and politics because we usually expect smaller, younger, and more left-leaning parties um, to, to be those that, uh, mostly, uh, that are most likely to comply with quotas. So I'm wondering why is this the case? Um, and then I suggest that, especially in the context of new democracies, we may have to look at parties' organizational strength and their ability to comply with quota regulations. So um, not only their willingness, so for example, their ideological um, uh, proneness to, to, to comply with quotas and if they are supportive of gender equality, but also to what extent they, they are able to organize themselves to find enough candidates, to make sure that those candidates are placed uh, on the, uh, in, in the correct order on their candidate lists. Um, and this is an aspect that has so far not received so much uh, scholarly attention because we have tended to simply transfer findings from European countries mostly, but uh, in, like in general advanced democracies. And we're expecting that parties and party systems work the same way in new democracies. And I argue in this article that this is not necessarily the case. Well, one of the things which really struck me reading the article is that, I mean, I guess I knew this, but seeing the numbers was really quite remarkable. Uh, these, were, these are for the local municipal elections, and there's simply a lot of districts, and the um, specific uh, quota requirements were quite strict. So tell us a little bit about the elections and uh, the challenges that they posed to these parties. Yeah, so as I said, the elections took place in 2018 and it were the first local elections since the Tunisian revolution in 2011. So um, like the whole local political system had to be created from scratch. Tunisia didn't have a, a local like a, a local democracy before. So as you say, there were, I think, 395 districts, so a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, so in principle, you would, you, you would want each party to run at least one list of candidates in each district, right? Uh, but then at the same time, uh, so first of all, you need a lot of candidates uh, and all of those parties um, or most of those parties are quite young because they mm -hmm. first came into existence after the revolution. So first of all, already, if you if you want to if you want to have a simple list in all districts, you would need to identify about um, 10,000 candidates. That's a lot. Uh, which that is a lot, exactly. Uh, and then, as you as you pointed out, um, and as I said before, uh, there are a lot of quotas, uh, and they are strict. So it's not enough to to just uh, identify any ten thousand candidates, but you have to have the right candidates. Um, and you have to so put them in a particular order with both horizontal and vertical uh, equity. Exactly. So uh, that means that you that you need fifty percent uh, female candidates. 
And those uh, women need to be, uh, so the, the, the female and the male candidates need to be placed uh, alternately on the lists. So if you have a, a male top candidate, he needs to be followed by a, women, by a woman and so on and so forth. And then they have a youth quota. So um, uh, a third of the candidates um, roundabout needs to be uh, under 35 years old. And the third quota is that they um, that you you are required to have ten percent um, or yeah so so among the first ten candidates needs to be one person with a disability if the party or the list wants to uh, be reimbursed their campaign costs. So for the first two quotas, if you don't do it, you're actually disqualified. But for the disability, exactly. for the first the three quotas. So if you if you don't if you do not have uh, vertical parity vertical gender parity uh, you are disqualified. Um, the second, if you don't have a youth uh, among the, the the first three, and then among every block of six candidates, you are disqualified. Um, if you do not have fifty percent of your lists in total as a party headed by a female, you are also disqualified, uh, and then you don't receive your uh, campaign reimbursement if you don't have um, the the people with disability. So let's talk about the findings then, and uh, the what you found with uh, the minimal compliance, the maximal compliance, and the somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. Yes. So as I said, I was wondering. What is it that makes some parties comply more and so on more of their lists and what hinders parties to comply? Because as you as you were saying, uh, they were the lists were disqualified if they would not comply. So this is really irrational for a party to not comply. Right. right. But there were quite a lot of uh, of disqualifications. Um, so what I what I did was uh, doing interviews to explain those uh, those puzzling findings. Uh, and it emerged that especially the, so, so first of all, the, the very small parties and the independent lists, so which nearly did not have any resources, not, not, not any um, organizational structure. So very often those parties are really like ad hoc uh, organizations. Uh, so they, they emerged right after the revolution. Then there were some people coming together, especially the independent list. They only exist in, in, in single uh, municipalities. So they simply sit, those are people sitting together and saying, okay, we want to change the, the city. Um, how, how can we do this? So they are not very strategically in there um, in, in, in when running for elections. So what they did was really just comply uh, as, as little as, as, little as uh, possible, but as much as necessary. So they um, they complied with the with the with the vertical gender parity and with the youth quota. So those were the two simplest quotas, I could say, mm -hmm. um, but also the the two that led to disqualification of the list. And, and um, a lot of these parties couldn't do it really, even if they wanted to. Exactly, and that's that's the point. So some parties were aware that they should, for example, um, implement the horizontal parity. So make sure that fifty percent of all of their lists were headed by a female candidate. And they they went like, we are not able to do to make sure of this because the local lists would would decide themselves uh, who were the, the the head of lists, and they didn't want women. Uh, so what then? What what they then often did was to run the party lists as independent lists. They were just so taking off the, the the party label. So that it's not counted against them. Yes, exactly, exactly. But in the end, of course, this is not very very beneficial for a party organization if you are not running in, in an election and those so in the end the independent lists were the winners of the election so they won about 32 percent of all lists uh, of all of all seats in the in the election um, but then you don't really know how much of those independent lists were actually lists of small parties uh, who were not able to 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 implement all the quota regulations so let's talk about then uh, Nidat Tunis, the, uh, the conservative uh, old regime yes. party. And because uh, mm -hmm. the way you described their strategy was actually fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Nidat Tunis, um, 
they they kind of had a, a different problem than the very small parties. So they have quite good resources. Uh, so they are a party of, of business people, of um, they have connections to the to the former power holders. So they are quite powerful, but they don't really have the people. So they are not uh, dispersed all over the Tunisian uh, territory as uh, Nahda uh, would be, for example. So what they did uh, was actually to, to go to, to those people I, I talked about uh, in the beginning, to to those activists uh, running for independent lists and telling them, look, uh, we have the resources. We can we can give you uh, we can give you money. We can provide you with knowledge. Uh, we can provide you with uh, campaign materials. Just you know, like run for Nida. Uh, so th th they were they were they were uh, persuading those lists to run under the label of Nida Tunis. They're so to tend their uh, their reach, um, their territorial reach that they wouldn't otherwise have. So interesting. They basically rented them. Yes, exactly. They did. So that, <laughs> and that, I mean, the last again, the, the, the question is to what extent, I mean, I, I talked to, to activists uh, who were experiencing this. Um, and they did not see themselves as NIDA representatives, right? right? So again, it's the question, what happens after the election? Mm -hmm. They are officially um, like, like representatives of, of NIDA Tunis, but to what extent this uh, will contribute to party consolidation or not, <laughs> which is a problem in Tunisia, right? That, mm -hmm. uh, the parties are dissuading and uh, new parties are, uh, are formed all the time, also of representatives who are elected for a specific party, which, which in turn can, can of course be uh, bad for, for democratization um, in mm. general and for the trust in political party organizations. And then the Nahda, you know, they basically, they were able and willing to do it, which is, that seems like less of a puzzle. No, that's not very puzzling. I mean, it's it, as, as I said in the in the beginning, the puzzle is really in in non-compliance yeah. in the case of Tunisia because there are very good reasons to comply, um, and I think that's also something that people may may forget when they when they think about Nahda as you know like an Islamist party and probably they are uh, against gender equality. Well, maybe they are, but if they have to, of course they can mount the, the candidates and the, the resources necessary to, to make sure that, that each quota is fulfilled and that they, in the end, uh, really had the highest number of lists, the highest number of candidates running um, and the highest rates of compliance with all quotas. It's really quite an un unintended consequence of the quota system. Yes, I would say so. Um, and I would not go as far as saying that, uh, you know, like it was something like a plan of another. Um, but I think like the when, when, when the introduction of the quotas was discussed, some people were were surprised that um, Enahda didn't show more resistance um, against those quota regulations. Uh, but when you when you take a second look, it's not so surprising because um, you know for them it's fine. Um, but yeah, uh, I think it wasn't the it was the attention to to deter um, small parties from running or um, to really hinder party institutionalization. So is one of the lessons of the article then that um, that people who are designing these laws need to think more carefully about the uh, the possible impact of these quotas? Yes, absolutely. That's one very central implication of the article, I think. Um, and especially when we think about new democracies more in general. Um, and this is what I said in the beginning, because I think very often the design and the um, uh, the way electoral quotas are supposed to work is modeled on, uh, on, on, on stable party systems um, and institutionalized parties. Um, but at the same time, most quotas are by today introduced in new democracies, in, in, in states that are on their way to, to democratizing. Um, so here, we definitely need to consider the the situation, you know, in the in the specific country. And if I have a, a very high number of newly formated parties, um, I think 
especially the very strict quota regulations um, will be very difficult to, to implement for, uh, for some of them, at least on the local level, I would say. So this is maybe important to say that I look at municipal elections and you know you could you could argue it's good to start with the quotas at the municipal level because then uh, the women the youth and the uh, people with disabilities can move up the the, the political career ladder um, but in this case i would say um, the municipal elections are specifically problematic uh, com combined with uh, strong quota regulations because you need so many candidates um, it's not as difficult on the national level where you have less districts, less candidates, um, although you may need uh, resources too, for example. Well, great. We've been speaking uh, with uh, Jana Belschner at the University of Bergen about uh, her new article on electoral engineering in new democracies. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, the article is open access, so I'm very happy if you read it, if you leave me comments, if you drop me a mail, if you disagree with me. So uh, yeah, I'd like to hear this. Super. All right. Take care. This is the Polmaps Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. We're joined now on our book segment by Emmy Madison of Wesleyan University, author of the new Oxford University Press book, The Violence Pendulum, Tactical Change in Islamist Groups in Egypt and Indonesia. Uh, Emmy, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So tell us about your book. Sure. So the book looks at when and why Islamist movements shift between violent and nonviolent tactics. And one of the things that I wanted to do with this book is to change how we think and talk about violence and nonviolence. Because after 9-11, you basically had all of this research emerging about terrorism and why especially Islamist groups and Al-Qaeda is one of the Islamist groups resort to violence. And then you saw research on radicalization and then separately research on de-radicalization. Also another line of inquiry on the strategic logic of nonviolence. And what was happening is that these lines of inquiry weren't really, were, were growing separately and weren't really talking to each other. Um, so then you had contradictory conclusions. So on one hand, we have arguments that repression leads to radicalization. And on the other hand, we also have arguments that repression can cause de-radicalization. And then similarly, we hear that when groups are weak, they can resort to violence, but also when groups are weak, they can disarm. So for me, this was a puzzle that is interesting and also has very real policy consequences. And I wanted to, dive into this and look at both violence and nonviolence and shift the conversation to think about tactical changes more broadly. So then what I do in the book is I look at four case studies, the Muslim Brotherhood and Jamaa Islamia in Egypt and Darul Islam and Jamaa Islamia in Indonesia. And I look at their evolution over time, narrowing in on um, the critical points when they shift for the very first time from nonviolence to violence, and then looking at different forms of disengagement to understand what was happening and how we can understand these different levels of shifts away from violence. So you're really kind of breaking apart then or disaggregating what it mean, what violence actually means. And uh, th this idea of like looking at the combination of justifications against capabilities, it's a really interesting one. So tell us a little bit more about that. Like, how did you come to that? And uh, what, what did you observe that made you think that that was a useful um, uh, distinction? Right. Um, so first, I really need to acknowledge that here I build on Ashur's um, I think really critical work on organizational de-radicalization because he is the one who pointed out that when we talk about violence, we're really talking about three different things. We're talking about whether groups have military capabilities, whether groups actually physically resort to violence and whether they justify and have an ideological just justification for violence. And he focused exclusively on de-radicalization. His book was on de-radicalization and he had different combinations um, that um, he then categorized the diff as different forms of de-radicalization. But I, I thought that was really insightful and a really interesting way of unpacking what it means to engage in violence, especially if one is to do process tracing, which is what I do. Um, and I wanted to expand beyond just de-radicalization and look at tactical shifts more generally. Um, 
So when is it that a group first forms an armed wing and why? And how is that connected to ideological justification? Are there particular sequences, right? Because there's literature out there both in, in contentious politics and also in conflict studies about what we think are the sequences of escalation. That first you have to justify violence ideologically and then behavior follows or then armed wings follow. But in reality, if you, if you look empirically, at least in the cases that I look, we have different pathways. So we have different sequences. Sometimes groups start out with an ideological justification for violence, sometimes they don't. And sometimes they first acquire weapons um, and, and then later justify violence against domestic targets, for instance, against the state or representatives of the state. So, um, that is kind of key to my process tracing analysis to really identify the first moments of escalation on these three different dimensions. So let's walk through uh, one or two of the cases. Um, you know, the, since, since our audience here is mostly Middle Eastern, maybe we should start with uh, the Egyptian cases. Um, and uh, before we go to the Muslim Brotherhood, why don't we actually talk about the Gamal Islamiya, since that's, uh, you know, I think one of the most interesting cases that you've got. Sure. Um, so what is interesting about the Gamal Islamiya is that it started out as, you know, in, in the late 70s as a student movement, as a breakaway from the Muslim Brotherhood that at that point had consolidated as a nonviolent movement. So you do have from the beginning this ideological justification for violence, right? It was the rev revolutionary response to the Muslim that was perceived at that point as too gradualist and too accommodationist towards the state and towards the regime. Mm -hmm. um, so you have this justification for violence. And then what the group is known for, so you had at the time, it was both Jama'a and then the Islamic Jihad. It was kind of a merger umbrella group, uh, which later split. But what is known for is the, the assassination of President Sadat. So you have an ideological justification for violence, then you have that behavioral engagement in violence in the form of assassination, but then you don't have a military wing until later. So the group only later develops the military wing. And then after it develops the military wing, we see a very interesting escalation in the type of tactics that it uses. Um, they become much more, um, so, First, you had, you know, the idea was you liberate the country from the tyrant, you, you remove the pharaoh, and you bring about an Islamic revolution, which is not what happened. Um, but then once um, you had this tit-for-tat vicious cycle of, of repression and escalation, and this confrontation between the regime and the group, the, the group, almost in a defensive move, forms an armed wing. As a, as a security precaution, as a security measure. And then that leads to a gradual shift. So you assassinate the president, well, then you start clashing with the police. From the police, then you slowly move to the Minister of Interior. From the Minister of Interior, then you move to um, civilians who you first perceive as particularly problematic. And then from there, the by the mid early 90s, it was engaged in large-scale uh, terrorist attacks against, against and, civilians. And, and the justifications for this are shifting as well. Right, right. I, I, and and what's interesting is that the justification is shifting. So De La Porta talks about um, violence kind of emerging out of action, right? Um, and, and we see that. We see that on the ground, there's these tensions and these escalations and these clashes, and there's attempts at negotiations that go terribly wrong. And every failure and every interaction leads to another um, escalation and then a justification for that escalation, right? Um, which then, you know, again, leads the group to be engaged in these large-scale terrorist attacks. And so then you, you've spent a lot of time then uh, uh, kind of unpacking why ultimately they decide uh, to renounce violence. Um, so, so walk us through that a little bit, since it's such an important part of the book. Right. So, and it's, it's a fat, I, I think it's a fascinating story. I mean, um, 
here you have a group that is known in the early 90s as you know one of the most active terrorist groups in Egypt and then in 97 you have some of the so-called historical leaders uh, basically put out in the middle of a court case um, hand a, a piece of paper that says we are unilaterally declaring a nonviolent a ceasefire and a nonviolent initiative and that is the start of a really comprehensive process that took took some time, uh, but it's the start of a really fascinating and comprehensive, completely and intentionally renouncing violence as a form of resistance and shifting exclusively to nonviolent tactics. Um, and it, it took some time. So it started with some leaders um, and then, you know, it took some time to implement a ceasefire and to actually um, implement this within the organization and get the rank and file on board. Um, it was a top-down process. Um, but the way that I understand and explain this is that it happened at a moment of organizational crisis when on one hand, um, it was clear that violence was just becoming so costly for the group militarily. I mean, um, almost everybody would, they, they say they had about 20,000 members in prison. Now it's, it's obviously unclear to know exactly what the membership base was at the time. There's no clear or concrete numbers, um, but you know, they, basically they, the, 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 the leadership says, well, we were all in prison. Right. Um, so militarily, it was just very costly. But politically, by the mid 90s, violence was also becoming very costly. And this is, again, a group that wanted to bring about an Islamic revolution and that uh, wanted to liberate society. So it saw itself connected to society. It wasn't a vanguard group that, you know, wanted to. Um, kind of impose its will top down. It, it did want to see that more bottom up shift in society as well. Um, and it was becoming very costly because the terrorist attacks had a very high cost on the tourism industry, on the population. And you start seeing very explicit public condemnation, not just of the violence, but of the group itself, including from Islamist voices, um, inside Egypt and the Muslim Brotherhood inside Egypt, also from some of the leaders outside of the country are starting to basically um, rethink the usefulness of terrorist attacks and also some other um, leaders, like some of the leaders of Hezbollah, for instance, were starting to really condemn the attacks that were happening inside Egypt. So my argument is that this, this high cost of violence and this public condemnation led to a sense of deep disillusionment within the organization with the existing forms of activism. And that presented the moment to shift away from violence. And here is where leadership is really important because you had leaders that were willing to rethink both the tactics, but also the ideological justification for violence and nonviolence. And um, they held extensive, so after they announced the, the shift, the nonviolent initiative, um, and after they imposed a ceasefire, they also met in prison and they did historical tours, um, meeting with members in prison, which at that point the government had allowed that, to really explain why, why this was this shift from, why violence was no longer tenable, why they were wrong to use violence against civilians, um, why the move the organization needed to move away from violence and really bring everybody on board and and help everybody understand this shift away from violence. And so you view this then as, as genuine a sincere ideational change. I do, yeah, I do, because it's um, that's not to say that it wasn't a pragmatic consideration for the leaders, right? Uh, but one of the points that I make in the book is that these shifts are both principled and pragmatic, and it's really difficult to untangle these two issues. Um, so yes, the leaders had pragmatic uh, and strategic reasons to move away from violence. It was basically a sink and swim or a swim scenario, right? Mm -hmm. The organization was going to become obsolete unless they did something. And that something was to rethink the tactics and rethink the um, approach of the organization and the repertoire of contention that uh, was effective. Um, but that being said, it's, you know, the way they talked about it, the way they thought about it, the way they justified it, 
is all in religious terms, in principled terms. I do not doubt personally that they genuinely felt that <laughs> they are leading to um, Muslims being harmed. And that is problematic, that they are leading to divisions in the community. And that is problematic, right, from a religious standpoint. So I, I do, I do think it was, I, I, um, I, I kind of accept, um, it, you know, when you do this kind of research, you have to ask yourself at which points do you kind of believe when people tell you that they do things because of what they believe in. And there comes a point at which I kind of entered this research with a very, um, kind of very much on the side of rationalist explanations, but there came a point at which I said, well, you know, <laughs> when people express these beliefs, at some point I have to believe them, right? Um, that they're genuine, um, that these issues matter to them, that these values matter to them. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, why don't we um, like go back to the early period in the Muslim Brotherhood then and see how the same types of analysis, like how you interpret their formation of an armed wing and then, and then the subsequent changes. Yeah, and I, so this is where I think my approach in process tracing really is important because when we talk, so when I started the, my research on the Muslim Brotherhood, a lot of the focus was primarily on their political participation and the issues around inclusion moderation. And the discussion around violence was mainly centered around Said Qutb. Um, it really looking at the period um, in the mid sixties, but when I dove into the history of the organization and, you know, unpacked this notion of violence to look at the very first time that the organization formed an armed wing or acquired weapons or justified any kind of military um, tactics, um, the story really starts 30 years earlier. So what we see is that it is first the struggle in Palestine that really politicizes um, the group that Hassan al-Banna started as primarily a, a social and educational and religious organization, which then becomes highly politicized in large part because of um, the, the Arab revolt in Palestine. So in, in the early and mid thirties, you see, uh, well, actually in the mid thirties, you see the, the Palestinian question become a really critical point for the organization in terms of mm -hmm. um, issues that motivated their action. And they start sending volunteers to Palestine. Now, those volunteers also had to have military training and they had to have some weapons. So um, the group is starting to think about and talk about justification for armed action against foreign occupiers and against the British. And, you know, uh, and all of those are, you know, if you, I mean, if you look at, you know, other justifications for violence in other groups, the, you know, fighting off foreign invasion is, you know, it's not out of the ordinary. And that's how it starts. And then, but then from there, you gradually see that politicization um, start talking about domestic issues. And you see the group starting to speak out against the Egyptian government and against the depravity of the Egyptian government and the moral decay that was happening domestically and the unwillingness of the political leaders to listen to them. And then you also see by 1942, the group form a military wing. Now the justification for this was that they needed to be able to fight in Palestine and fight off the British in Egypt as well. So again, very much focused on external forces, on occupying forces, kind of imperialism and you know external external enemies, not on the domestic, uh, not on the government or not on domestic issues. But once you've the, once the group formed that military wing. Um, what I see and the way that I explain it is this slippery slope of escalation where you have a militarization of the organization. And not only do you have a militarization at the rank and file level in terms of, um, you know, a lot of members having military training and kind of becoming more um, prone to think of the military option, but also in terms of leadership, because the military wing had its own hierarchy and leadership, and the leader of the military wing starts competing 
with the Hassan al-Banna and you start seeing leadership divisions and tensions within the organization and Hassan al-Banna's leadership be contested, which, you know, I mean, Hassan al-Banna to this day is thought of as the charismatic, the most charismatic leader the group has ever had, the founding figure. You know, I mean, he, he has almost this myth, he's almost this mythical person, um, leader for the Brotherhood, but there was a period that his leadership was severely contested within the organization. And it's that competition within the leadership because of the creation of the military wing, which then I attribute to the behavioral, the very first behavioral engagement and violence within Egypt against one of the judges that basically sent a couple of Muslim brothers to prison. And then from there, then again, you have this competition and eventually the group also, uh, the government starts repressing the group and closes this down. And the group then eventually also assassinates um, the prime minister. One of the things which is interesting in your story is that in terms of justifications is that most of the other political movements at the time are also forming armed wings. And so it, it doesn't seem extraordinary. Right. And so and I think- oh, Go ahead. Yeah, and I think that's an important part of the story. Um, and I say in my book, I talk about it as kind of whether violent norms of resistance are prevalent or not. Um, and yeah, I mean, at the time, uh, the Brotherhood was not extraordinary. It was not um, the first group with paramilitary formation by any stretch of the imagination. It was not the first one to adopt more revolutionary uh, tactics. If anything, it followed all of the other groupings. So, so then you look into the 1960s and uh, you know, the, the schism there. Um, and so this, like, this has been a big case for everybody who studies the effects of repression on, uh, on you know, violence or de-radicalization. So tell us, like, walk us through what you saw um, as you analyze the, what happens to the organization in the 60s and the 70s. Yeah, so in so what you have in the 60s, um, you basically have a, a split, for me, one of the most interesting uh, findings that I didn't account for, to be honest, in my theoretical framework was the, the generational split that you see in terms of how different constituencies respond to repression, right? So you have the same organization being repressed, but within the organization, you have different responses. So there is a constituency that becomes radicalized by repression mm -hmm. and it tended to be the younger members of the organization. And, um, you know, I, I account for that through, you know, younger members tend to have more revolutionary ideas. They also tend to have shorter time horizons. They also, um, I mean, in this particular case, more specifically to the Brotherhood, they were less connected to Hassan al-Banna and kind of the, the origin story of the Brotherhood and what the initial vision was. Whereas the older leaders, um, they think, so there's that connection to Hassan al-Banna, right? And the original vision before the group was politicized, the original vision and mission of the organization. But then there's also more pragmatic consideration in terms of thinking about the organization itself and the long-term um, survival of the organization and organizational considerations. And there, the effects of repression are very different because there, the, for, for these older leaders, um, it, it became clear that violence was too costly and that the group had to consolidate and be clear about nonviolence and had to, um, because there was, you know, there was disillusionment and again, that mechanism of disillusionment and mechanism of high cost of violence. So their leaders looked inward which there they also did take some elements from Said Qutb in terms of focusing on the organization itself. Um, but they looked inwards and they focused on uh, preserving the organization um, at all costs rather than radicalizing and um, fighting the government through more revolutionary and radical means. So I guess the last question uh, would then be that half of the book is about Indonesia. Could you mm -hmm. very quickly just like tell us what you gained by doing this kind of unusual uh, comparison um, between the Egyptian case and the Indonesian case? What did you learn uh, by, by this particular comparison? Mm -hmm. um, 
I'm glad you say unusual because that's actually one of the reasons why I wanted to reach beyond Egypt and to pick Indonesia. Um, It's surprising to me in a way how few cross-regional comparisons are. Now, of course, there's very pragmatic reasons for it, right? Um, In terms of it's hard to be able to to have access to resources and that expertise in, into regions. But um, it's, it's surprising to me how, how little research there is on Indonesia, relatively speaking, seeing how, you know, it's the largest Muslim majority country. Mm-hmm. It's one of the most significant democracies in the world. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and it's relevant. It's relevant for democratization. It's relevant for Islamism. It's relevant for political violence. It's also had significant periods of, of waves of terrorism. Um, so it was, I, I wanted to do this cross-regional comparison, but the way that I picked the cases is to think about how do different cases compare. And I looked, so I looked at the Darul Islam and at the Jama'a Islamiyah because for me, the Darul Islam kind of in terms of timeline fits with the early history of the Brotherhood. Mm-hmm. And the other issue there that was interesting as a point of comparison is that you also see the same shift from first, you know, um, picking up arms and justifying armed action against the external occupying forces, so against the Dutch. But then once you have arms and once you have a military wing and once you engage in fighting those external forces, you gradually turn towards fighting the domestic governments. Now, government. Now, in the case of the Darul Islam, it was much more extensive, right? I mean, there was a rebellion against the against the the newly established Indonesian Republic and um, and uh, the the leader of the rebellion Kartasuwiria really he had an Islamic constitution and he tried to establish an Islamic state and declared an Islamic state in West Java so um, it, it took a very different you know a, a totally different uh, scale than what was happening in Egypt but for me, the fascinating part is that even though you had completely different organizations, uh, different contexts, different regions, you had very similar mechanisms of escalation and of shifting that, that process of militarization where you start out with one mission to defend against external occupiers and then external forces, and you end up fighting your domestic government or at least attacking, being willing to use violence against domestic targets. Um, and that was fascinating. And then with Jama'a Islamiyah, um, kind of similarly to the comparison um, between the Brotherhood and the Darul Islam, if we compare Jama'a Islamiyah in Egypt and the Jama'a Islamiyah in Indonesia, they have ideological similarities. Um, it, you know, on paper, at least, uh, the Jama'a says that it is inspired by the principles of the Jama'a Islamiyah. And you also have um, similar tactics. So there's a lot of similarities there, but very different processes of de-escalation. Um, and I account that based both on in terms of the leadership and organizational dynamics, but also some other external factors like public attitudes. So there's, there's some interesting ambiguities in in Indonesia. So in Egypt, you had a very clear condemnation, not just of violence and of terrorism, but of Gama itself. So the organization itself, right? People started seeing it as terrorists. And in Indonesia, it's fascinating because you have actually even more opposition to violent tactics than in Egypt a lot of times. But the um, different attitudes towards the leaders of the movement and towards the movement itself. There's a lot less knowledge about the movement. People are just ignorant about Jamai Islamiyah for the longest time when the first terrorist attacks happened. They thought that everything is just a conspiracy by the West to justify the global war on terror and Indonesians clearly couldn't do it, clearly couldn't resort to such tactics. Um, So there's, there's more ambiguity there in terms of how the general population feels about the group itself, which then the group can exploit to, to exist and to continue um, existing. So on one hand, the opposition to violence in Indonesia encouraged the group to focus on nonviolent tactics and also the democratic openings and the very different political context and political opportunity structures encouraged and made violent, more costly and nonviolent tactics 
uh, less costly. So they provided the incentives and the exit options to really focus on nonviolence and prioritize nonviolence. But the Indonesian group didn't face the same pressures from the public and the same organizational crisis that um, pushed the um, Egyptian group to completely renounce violence. So you didn't have the same ideological revisions in the Indonesian group. So interesting. Um, we've been speaking with Emmy Madison of Wesleyan University about her new book, The Violence Pendulum uh, from Oxford. Uh, Emmy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me.